to the Postmodern Art Podcast, the podcast dedicated to giving artists who are wanting the world over the platform they deserve. I'm your host, Nathan Raglan, and I hope you're ready for a heartfelt conversation today. Today we have David De Pasquale, a character designer who recently worked on Arlo the Alligator Boy and I Heart Arlo, the latter premiering tomorrow, August 27th on Netflix. I could honestly listen to David talk all day considering the love and passion he exudes in this conversation. And I hope you enjoy it as well. Make sure you support him with the links in the description below. If you enjoyed the conversation and want to hear more like it, you should subscribe and check out the back catalog of outstanding artists and their love and passion for their art. You can also support the podcast by checking out the merch shop in the link below and rep the podcast through some stylish streetwear. Finally, if you want a place to talk more about the podcast, consider joining the Apocalypse Podcast Network Discord server to chat about this podcast and others in the network. In fact, let's hear about another enticing podcast in the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Let's teach people something super quick. Every year, uh, more people die from getting hit on the head with coconuts than they do from shark attacks. <laughs> <laughs> like dead dead it's not that many because like only like one or two people i think die from shark attacks every year the low teens for the coconuts coconuts are hard teach, teach me something, something good. good now on your local favorite podcast thing <laughs> yeah all podcast things and now without further ado please enjoy the postmodern art podcast is this your first time appearing on a podcast? I believe so, yeah. Ooh, I feel very honored then. <laughs> um, I think, I don't think, yeah, I don't think I've ever been on a podcast. Nice. I've done, like, lectures and I've done, like, pre-recorded stuff, but I've never done, like, a podcast episode podcast. So. There we go. There we go. Oh, I was, I was going to say, I, I was aware of the, the lectures because I looked at your, uh, your resume you have on your website and it's talking about the classes that you were teaching and such. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, I'm teaching. Um, uh, I actually took a break um, this summer, and I'm trying to. I I try to switch back and forth between the classes that I teach, just because um, I don't want to overload myself for my own mental health. Fair enough. Um, so I switch back and forth between CGMA, um, which is the Computer Graphics Master Academy, mm-hmm. um, very popular um, online class uh, site um, for games and um, animation. Um, nice. You know, kind of just the creative, the general creative uh, side of entertainment. Right. And then I also teach um, at uh, Brainstorm, which was actually a brick and mortar school, from what I understand, uh, oh. before in the before times. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, now they switched to, to online. Um, I don't know if they're going to keep it. I hope they do, because I think it's been nice um, just teaching people from all over the world. Yeah. Um, but I teach there as well. Um, I teach character design in both, and they've both been great. I, I I actually took classes at CGMA, but I never took classes at Brainstorm. Okay. Um, but uh, they just sort of ramped up their animation program. Nice. Uh, mostly they were focused on, on games uh, and kind of like the, the, excuse me, the gaming side of, uh, you know, the entertainment. But, um, you know, they just switched into animation, and I got asked to uh, create a, a, a character design specifically for animation class, so that was really fun. There we um, go. It was my first time building a class from the ground up, which I loved. I absolutely loved doing it. So, 
I can only imagine how much of a, a interesting experience that must have been. Considering the fact that it's like you know, like you're putting basically as much of yourself into that lesson plan more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think there is a kind of common misconception with teaching that you know every intro to design class is going to be the same. They're going to teach the same concepts, and you know, it's just kind of like a different teacher. Um, but the reality is, is that, it, you know, every class is, is going to be a little bit different, even if they are covering the same concepts, because, um, you know, the, the teacher themselves has, has a, of course, their own experiences, uh, in the industry, but, um, be also their own references that okay. they pull, you know, I, I, I'm inspired by specific artists, you know, whether throughout history or throughout the, you know, the history of animation or just history in general, um, you know, illustrators, uh, even going back to, you know, artists from like, you know, ancient Egypt and, you know, cave paintings and all that stuff. And, um, you know, the simplicity and representational aspect of those kinds of illustrations from, from way back in antiquity are huge inspirations of mine. So, um, you know, it's really interesting kind of incorporating all of my personal favorite references into a class. And I think that's kind of where people, um, who are looking to take a class might not realize um, you know, they, they might not realize that, that the teacher has incorporated those kinds of things into lesson plans, you know? Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, it's one of those, like, I, I, yeah. I, I was gonna say, I can certainly tell like the different influences and stuff as I was doing my little bit of research and such with yeah. the, with the, the personal work you've at least posted, like goodness, I can definitely see a lot of the, the more ancient stuff with like the, the terracotta, the, the cards, words are wonderful. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but with, like those, the, the wood carving stuff that I was seeing, um, like just some simple designs. Like I could tell, like, there's a lot of like thorough like ancient but also like somewhat of a modern spin when it comes to the influences you have in your art yeah definitely i i definitely err on the side of representational you know i was nice. um i was i was taught as an illustrator so I, I never went to school for animation except for the kind of classes i took um on my own so i was never like i went to school for character design or i went to school for entertainment design i was like no i went to school for editorial illustration, which is a unfortunately dying industry. Um, you know, I always wanted to be in animation, but I never really, that, that was back when the internet was, um, you know, Newgrounds and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and before like any of us thought to Google like, Oh, what, what's the best animation school to go? To? <laughs> <laughs> you kind of like, had to do a lot more in depth research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't even know CalArts existed like when I went to college. So. Which is, I mean, church of the box I was living under, but, uh, you know, I did, I, I was born in Jersey City, um, and I was raised in central Jersey in a sort of smaller town, so, um, it, I was, I was kind of living under a little bit of a, of a, a suburban rock. Um, I did go to school in New York, but, nice. um, you know, so I, I consider myself fairly street savvy, but, uh, at, at heart I am a Jersey boy, so. Um, I was gonna say Mar uh, Maria, the one that actually set up the this uh, podcast for us or whatnot. She's from Jersey, and she's told me before oh, awesome. how how like the animation scene is it really there? People grow up to be like doctors or something mm -hmm. along the lines of that. So it's really funny going back to where like I grew up. Like I was born in Jersey City, which is, in my opinion, I know super controversial. Like as much of a borough of New York City as Staten Island is, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I was born there and, and um, you know, I'd I would frequently go into the city. I was not a, like, oh, you know, you never should go into the city, like, you know, um, kind of sheltered. I was not sheltered as a child. Um, 
from from the world and 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 you know the glo the sort of global experiences um that i think are are vital for you know opening a child's world and mind um especially to the creative aspect of or the creative part of their brain um but um i when i was growing up uh, when i go back to where i grew up um, where my parents still live you know uh, i'm actually okay. going to visit in two weeks nice. um when i uh when i went back to visit um i mean everybody now knows what i do yeah. <laughs> but it was really funny when um you know when i went back and people were like oh what do you do and i'm like oh i work in animation and they're like you can do that like it's almost <laughs> like me like i didn't know that that was a thing people did. I'm like, how do you think cartoons get made? You know, yeah. of course, you can't see a dead cat without hitting somebody in animation in Los Angeles. But, um, you know, when you're in central New Jersey um, and you tell people like, hey, no, I uh, I work for Netflix. And they're like, uh, oh, cool. Do you like... Do you help out with Stranger know, Things? Tell, tell them, yeah, like, tell them to bring back Stranger Things. I'm like, I don't work on that side. <laughs> <laughs> like, I do animation. Um, but, like, you know, when I was working at Disney, telling people I work at Disney or DreamWorks or... You know, doing I've done freelance work for nearly everybody, I think, at this point, except for yeah. I think Paramount. Um, but uh, telling people like the studios I've worked for and like seeing people just kind of baffled that that's a thing. And I'm like, I don't know, you sit your kids in front of the TV every day. Who do you think makes that stuff? Like, <laughs> yeah, no joke. Uh, it's, like, it's like what we do is magic, which I think is really funny. Oh, no, absolutely. Like, especially I know talking to other people um andy in particular there's one i think of like telling me how whenever there would be like the make-a-wish kids that would come in and see like that oh, yeah. animation stuff like help kind of break down that stigma but also like you know just kind of i guess reignite that magic that some of these kids have when yeah. it comes to animation as a whole so yeah absolutely i i really do think it is magic i mean at the end of the day you as an artist are creating something that never existed before exactly my very definition is magic you know so um you know, I, I always kind of like to think of it that way, like I'm a little bit of a magician um, that that is bringing something into existence. It, as, even, even, you know, the stupidest little drawing, like I'm still bringing it, I'm still drawing something that never before existed, you know, in its in its, in its its current form uh, into the world, which I, th I always think is very interesting and super inspiring. You know, I kind of like remember that, you know, if I feel like I'm getting down on my work or, you know, I'm feeling a, a bit stressed, um, you know, with freelance or with, you know, whatever I'm, you know, stressed about. It's like remembering that, you know, I, I am, I am bringing a creative bit of magic into the world, which I kind of love. There we so. go. There you go. That's a beautiful way to word it. I love how we Thanks. technically haven't really started the podcast, but we've gone oh, so far. <laughs> All right, David, before we really get started, I must ask the icebreaker question to ask for every single podcast. What is your most unpopular art opinion? Oh, man. You know, I heard you ask Andy this question. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to have a really good answer for this. <laughs> <laughs> At least you came more prepared than some guests beforehand. So. Yeah. Oh, geez. My most unpopular art opinion. Um, I guess that kind of depends on who it's unpopular with because you have the people who are professionals who they have certain, you know, opinions that uh i could be considered bucking against but then you also have you know kind of the the general public yeah <laughs> yeah the general public or the hobbyists or the fans who are just i feel as as important you right. know uh, we do make content for 
somebody. <laughs> We're not just making it for ourselves. Exactly. Um, I... It's okay to do fan art. It's okay to do fan art. Okay. I feel like that's a, that's a bit of an unpopular opinion among professionals. It's kind of we're kind of split on that, I guess. Okay. Uh, I feel like that's a cop out answer, but um, it's absolutely okay to do fan art, and I encourage you to do so um, because we as artists, our best work is the stuff that's the most personal, um, mm -hmm. and we tend to draw what we like. So if you like something. Um, you know, don't be afraid to, to put it down on paper. Um, you know, I've known plenty of, uh, artists who have gotten jobs <laughs> just by doing fan art, um, which people be like, no, don't, don't say that. Don't force that. I'm like, it doesn't matter. You know, your skills will come through no matter what you draw. Exactly. Uh, you know, and, uh, I guess the other unpopular opinion that I have regarding art is um, it's okay to recognize that your journey is hard because um, okay. I th I think some people think that um, you know they hear from recruiters they hear from other people like oh character design is so hard why don't you go into story or why don't you do backgrounds or why don't you do something else because um, character design is just really hard to get into. And it's like, yeah, but somebody's got to do that job. Yeah, so, true. you know, um, I think we, uh, especially people who um, want to get into animation, I feel like there is a general desire to just jump into anything that could get you the job the fastest. Um, and in reality, it's like, if you really want to do character design, that's what your heart is set on, then it's okay to recognize that that's going to be really hard to do. But at the same time, somebody has to do that. So don't let, don't let the advice of an industry professional um, necessarily dictate how you begin your career. I mean, those are like, both of those, I think, kind of go hand in hand, in my opinion, because they're both like very strongly just getting down to the baseline of just do what you love at the end of the day. Like, mm -hmm. like when it comes to fan art, I mean, like you said yourself, like artists try to be very with their personal work. That's when they showcase themselves, I guess, the most. So, yeah, totally. so if nothing else, like do draw what you love. And then when it comes to like the, the path, like. Yeah, maybe the road less traveled on, but someone's got to travel down that road. And exactly. if you love it and are truly dedicated to it, why not go for it? Yeah, exactly. And I feel like there is, again, this push of being like, well, you know, the industry needs more story artists. And it's like, yeah, but there are people who are studying that who will do that. Yeah. You know, if you really want to be a character designer, don't let somebody discourage you from doing so. Just because it's not the easiest route or it's not, you know, or everybody wants to do it. You know, I have I, I got I was not a character designer at some point in my life. You know, like yeah. I had to work myself to get there. Was it hard? Yeah, it was really hard. Um, but I also recognize the fact that it was hard. You know, and you know, I like to consider myself fairly humble to a certain extent. But I also acknowledge the fact that I worked I worked my ass off to do yeah. it. You know, um, and it's okay to struggle, and it's okay to, you know, perhaps push your your own set timeline for yourself um, a little bit if it means that you're working to do what you really want to do.
There we go. There we go. Nevertheless, doing fan art and, you know, don't be dismayed by industry professionals saying that it's hard to get into certain fields. Yeah, because industry professionals say you have to do fan art, too. <laughs> and industry, yeah, so basically, don't listen to industry professionals. <laughs> Is that Are those hills that you're still willing to die say, Listen to industry professionals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> with a grain of salt, because everybody's journey is different. There we you go. Know? Uh, if somebody comes to me for advice, will I give it? Yeah. Do I expect them to listen to it to the letter? No, of course not. You know, my experience is different than somebody else's experience. Um, you know, even if we grew up in the same kind of economic, um, you know, from the same economic background or from the same kind of, um, you know, social structure, like their journey is still different. Yeah. Um, so my advice not might, might not be applicable. I think it's up to the individual to decide you know, whether or not this is what they really want to be doing. There we go. That, that, that's ultimately what should, what should be at the end of the day. Just let the individual just explore what they want more or less. Like if they want to do it, go for it. Um, Yeah. The most successful work is the most personal. There we go. Um, but with that, those are hills that you're still willing to die on. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. I will will die on that hill until I am, I will die on that hill. Do fan art. It's fine. (laughs) There we go. There we go. By the way, I forgot to say this before I did rolling. I'm going to edit this a little bit out. Um, I, In the intro, I'm going to say, so this episode is coming out August 26th, which if you keep in mind with certain dates or whatnot, the following day should be iHeart Arlo's release or whatnot. Someone mentioned that nice. it's going yeah. to be released tomorrow. Don't be dismayed by that. I didn't want to throw you yeah. off with that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. There you go. Um, with that, I can't think of a better way to start. The Postmodern Art Podcast. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Nathan Ragland. Uh, feel free to subscribe or follow whatever streaming platform you prefer. I'm a part of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com for more about this podcast and other outstanding ones in the network. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at PostModArtPod for future updates and guest announcements, including today's guest. <clears throat> he is a well-traveled character designer who's worked on a plethora of outstanding shows, from the 7D, Invincible, Animaniacs, and Sesame Street, to being the lead character designer for Netflix's Arlo the Alligator Boy and the upcoming series I Heart Arlo, set to release tomorrow, August 27th. Welcome to the podcast, David Despasquale! Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, thank you for that introduction. I, 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 tried, yeah, to, I, I tried to give you that the... Yeah, the, the appreciation you deserve for all the stuff that you've certainly had your hands in. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I do, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I um, I love what I do. So uh, I'm just glad people are watching the things that <laughs> I'm working, I've, I've worked on. There you um, go. Yeah, I mean, tomorrow, I can't believe, I can't believe it releases tomorrow. That know, was like, right? you know, I know it's my it was my most kind of recent project that I could that that I can talk about because I've been on uh, a couple things that I cannot um, since then. But man, that was such like a, I think that was probably the most fun I ever had on a crew, that particular, that particular uh, project. So I can only imagine. We'll definitely talk more about that. But before we really divulge into that show, I want to go back just a little bit. I want to know the origin stories of David. What got you interested in art and animation in the first place? I mean, it's that cliche answer of like, I've always been interested in, in, in art, you know, since I could pick up a pencil. Um, okay. You know, my mom, my mom likes to remind me, not frequently, but, um, you know, every so often that she still has the first drawing that I ever did, um, which I think I was like two and a half, maybe three. Um, 
you know, it was this picture of a circus on this, like, on, like, giant 18 by 24 newsprint. Oh, wow. um, but, like, everything was there. Like, the ringleader was there. The lion tamer was there. Like, the clown was there. Like, the elephant. There was a giant elephant. Um, and so I can I can say with confidence that I, the first drawing I ever did was an actual illustration. So <laughs> telling stories uh, has been, um, you know, in my psyche since I was, since I, since I could remember. Um, so I've always wanted to tell stories. And isn't it kind of ironic that kind of the first drawing that you did is kind of a full circle with some of the most recent things that you've been doing? I mean, (laughs) I guess everything comes back full circle at some point in time in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. When did it go from being just like this love and just like admiration for just doing art in the first place to a passion, potentially making it your career in little New Jersey? Um, Probably like junior high school when I started panicking and realizing I had to. (laughs) apply to college <laughs> you know I've always I always loved drawing um I was also a big music person okay. um I played uh I still play the piano um nice. and trumpet um I was in high school marching band uh, feel free to make all the jokes you'd like um and <laughs> you know I was um I also was in drum and bugle corps um, where I traveled the country which I thought was amazing um to do uh, and very formative. I, I I still love music. I still love playing music. Um, you know, music was the biggest passion of mine throughout high school, which I thought was really funny. Um, but there was a point in time. I mean, I was a terrible student, so it's like I knew I had to do something creative because academically there was nothing I was going to be able to do because just oh, that was not me. I Fair enough. <laughs> didn't, didn't pay attention. I didn't do homework. Like you know, uh, if any of you out there are in high school and you feel like you're just a lost cause because you're not good academically. Don't worry, because I was there too. Um, and look at me now. Uh, but, you know, I, I had to decide where to go to college. And, you know, I really sat down and thought one day about what I would what I would like to be doing for the rest of my life. Um, you know, and of course, I was I had a sketchbook, you know, since eighth, since eighth grade. Um, you know, I really kind of had a consistent sketchbook where I would sit and draw, of course, like Dragon Ball fan art and, you, you know. Um, you know, all kinds of anime fan art. Um, but I re- it really kind of took me by surprise when I sat down and I was like, do I want to, do I want to play music for the rest of my life professionally? And I kind of shocked myself by saying, no, I don't. Um, I think this is something that I love doing to the point that I don't want to feel it become a chore and I don't think that I would stick with it under pressure, which was kind of a hard thing for me to realize because, you know, I had a lot of pressure performing music. You know, I was in the pit orchestra. I played professionally in the, you know, New Jersey state theater when I was in high school. Um, so I had been doing it professionally or semi-professionally. Um, and I mean, as professional as you can get for 14 or 15, but, um, you know, I mean, it was, it, I was serious about it. You know, I was really serious about it. And um, I just, the concept of going to school for music and learning music theory and doing all that, you know, doing the kind of whole rigmarole of educating myself properly in music was just didn't appeal to me. Um, and I, I wanted to, I wanted it to stay fun. Um so I said, no, I don't think I'm going to go to school for music. Um, and I decided to go for art instead because something inside me said, 
you're going to be able to push yourself further in art than you ever will in music. There we go. So um, that's how I got uh, into art school. <laughs> nice, nice. I mean, hey, it, it, I can only imagine, like, especially how rough of a decision that must have been. Like, like you said, you you've dedicated a lot of your time to music, and I imagine at one point in your life you thought that was the way to go, but like, yeah, I, totally. I guess that kind of like light bulb moment of like i enjoy this but i don't want to be forced to do this i guess right exactly like the 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 idea of being forced to perform things i don't want to perform were you know it was like a weird it was such a weird realization um you know because i was like oh i could i could be in pit orchestra on broadway or i could be you know in a philharmonic band and i would be perfectly happy right. um but i don't want to be and I think, I think it was a very adult moment, <laughs> and I didn't have many of those in high school. Um, <laughs> Who does? Let's be honest. <laughs> a very mature moment, um, which I was not. Um, <laughs> a very mature moment in high school where I was like, you know, I don't want to do this for a living. I want it to stay fun, um, and I feel like I could push myself further doing art than I ever could doing music. I mean, you certainly proved that with kind of the journey you've taken so far. Like, I can only imagine, especially once you got the opportunity to go to art school and all stuff like that, how much, like, creatively fulfilled you must have felt. Yeah, I mean, I was also frustrated because I, um, I think a lot of artists are perfectionists, and also I'm highly competitive. Not in, like, a jerk kind of way, like, oh, they shouldn't have won, I shouldn't have won, because I never, I always acknowledge, you know, people's, um, successes and stuff, and I feel like they're just as important as my own. But um, I'm I'm highly competitive with myself. Where if I'm not fast enough, I mean it's a it's a big flaw, quite honestly. You know, it sounds like oh you're just so dedicated. And it's like no, that's that's a flaw of mine. Where I'm so highly competitive with myself. If I'm not improving, then I get you know depressed or I get agitated or frustrated. So um, you know, it really didn't start becoming serious until after college. Okay. Um, because I studied abroad in Florence. I studied um, art history in Florence um, for um, a month just after I graduated college. And I really didn't have any kind of direction in college um, just because I didn't, I didn't really want to do editorial illustration. It didn't really, it didn't really spark any kind of interest in me. I wanted to tell different kinds of stories okay. um, and I dabbled kind of, with the idea of maybe I'll go into medical illustration because it'll be really fun. Like I get to draw, you know, weird things and get paid a lot of money for it. And then I realized that's not what I want the spark of my career to be. I don't want it to be like, well, I just did this to make money because I had never been like that. You know, right. I, was, I was never like a money chaser. Um, you know, uh, so I sort of like dipped my toe back into the idea of like, well, what if you went into animation? Um, you love animation. Somebody's got to do it. Um, you know, why Why can't you? And, um, you know, so I, I kind of honed my skills for five or six years after I graduated. I didn't get into the industry until I was, um, gosh, how old was I? 26? I was going to say, it was about 2015, if I remember correctly, based on yeah. your resume, at least. Yeah, I got my first freelance job in animation in, in like, November, December of 2014. Okay. So I was... I was 26, yeah, when I first started getting into animation. Um, crazy. Crazy that it was... People were like, oh, you know, I'm 23 and two years out of school and I'm never going to get a job. I'm, I'm like, 
<laughs> sweet, yeah, you poor sweet thing. Like, it's <laughs> going to take how long it's going to take. And I think, um, you know, I worked as a genius at the Apple store for five years before Ooh, okay. I, yeah, before I was good enough to feel like I could come out here and try, um, you know, uh, but I just remember every single day working, um, behind that bar and helping people with problems. And, you know, it really helped my people skills. Like I got a lot of social, um, clarity and social education from from working retail i think everybody should work retail for at least a year in their life i feel like the world would be a nicer place um <laughs> but you know the the five years i was there um i just remember walking into work every day and just so vividly saying to myself i shouldn't be doing this right i i know what i should be doing and that's making a career out of art um, i should be drawing right now I should be making something right now. Um, so it was, it was both affirming and also incredibly frustrating to not be good enough to do what I want to be doing, but to have the clarity to understand that I, I have something I should be doing and want to be doing. Absolutely. So I was, I was going to say, I, I'm, I kind of understand where you're coming from in an aspect. I'm currently working like a, a forklift job, like just at a warehouse or whatnot. So and I've worked other jobs. Like I, I've worked at a, a mall food court. I've worked uh, spinning a sign in the hottest place, Florida. Um, so, so I, 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 I yeah, like hot and humid and potentially raining just about every single day at the work. So yeah, there's always that little fun aspect of it. Um, but nevertheless, like I. I know that like with what I could potentially be doing with like maybe this podcast or maybe with filmmaking and such, like I know it's not the end goal. It's a job, but it's not my career. Exactly. And I think people get discouraged, um, you know, by saying, well, I'm starting to get too old. And the reality is, is you're not, you're never too old to do it. Um, I feel like the creative field, um, requires, um, people to get into it later in life right i feel like if it's just made up of everybody who was fresh out of school um then there's no how do i put this there's no life experience aspect of things um that um sort of make it richer you know people have different your experience as a, as a forklift driver or working in a mall food court like you can think of stories that involve those jobs. Oh, definitely. And, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lord knows I can <laughs> I could definitely think of a couple Genius Bar stories for sure. Oh, um, I can only imagine. You know, <laughs> just customers in general. I mean, just people in general. Like, just the concept of being able to observe people on a daily basis. Like that, I consider part of my study. That was part of my schooling, was observing people on a daily basis and how they interact with other people and you know sometimes the kindness that comes out in, in people in dire situations and also yeah. the not so kind side of people that come out in dire situations so um you know i i honestly think that uh you know your experiences in life whether it's a completely different career and you're changing fields or just your journey beyond school you know trying to get into this industry like you need to bring those things with you um because they make the industry richer and they and it's it's vital for those experiences 
to be incorporated into the kinds of stories we tell. Um, you know, because you want things from a different perspective. Right, right. I mean, you certainly, I, I, I was going to say, you certainly bring a lot of that perspective in some of the opportunities that you eventually had after you gotten out of, you know, after you gotten your foot in the industry. Starting off with Disney, of all places, with uh, the 7D. <laughs> It's like talk about like stepping up to the big leagues. Like that's that's something. <laughs> I mean, I am. Thank you. Uh, I am highly competitive with myself. So I mean, good. Um, you know, I I I always shoot for the majors. Um, I was a prop designer at Disney TV, and I think I think being a prop designer taught me how to be a better character designer because it taught me how to be specific. Yeah. Like who's you know when I was working on the seventy, it's like you know. Whose pencil is this? It's Doc's pencil. It's not Grumpy's pencil. It's not Sleepy's pencil. It's Doc's pencil, you know? So character specificity was something that I really got a kind of crash course in doing prop design on that show uh, because the the characters' personalities were so specific. Yes. Um, and it was so necessary to, you know, for me to treat the props like they were characters because they belonged to the characters. So, um you know, I think I think it's a great position. I think prop designers are worth their weight in gold. Um, and you know, if you're a good prop designer, you could you'll you will always be wanted. Yeah. Um, you know, and it, it taught me a lot about character design. So um, starting off kind of like on on that level um, really taught me how to be a better designer, um, and then also how to work in the confines of a studio system. You know, because I had done freelance for. Um, a company called Six Point Harness, um, okay. or sorry, Six Point Two, which is the um, the union sanctioned studio of Six Point Harness, mm. um, and they were working on a Nick Jr. show called The Fresh Beat Band of Spies. Okay, um, and I actually, through a recommendation for somebody to call um, this person, I actually made a cold call, which people don't really do anymore. Um, I made a cold call to somebody and was like, "Hey, I hear you're looking to you're looking for." Um, a freelance character designer um, and the person who recommended me couldn't do it at the time so um, I just took a shot I was like whatever if they say no they say no right um, and I ended up getting the gig so nice. it was my first thing on my resume that I could say like hey I work in animation <laughs> like that was such a big thing for me you know because I, I had done work for Disney publishing in the past and okay. um, you know like smaller gigs um, I was already exhibiting at you know, shows like CTN or WonderCon, you know, it was already sort of in the convention circuit or the expo circuit. But I I had, I had not snagged that animation job first. And being a model designer, doing things like mouth charts and turnarounds, um, you know, really kind of allowed me to, and redresses, like, gave me the experience to be like, oh, no, I know I can do this. I know how to do this, you know. Um, so that was my first freelance gig, and then my first, you know, on-staff gig uh, was at Disney TV. There we go. Um, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It was. It was very much like you know, jumping out of a car at seventy miles an hour. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I had I had gotten my leg strength up to the point where I could at least jog out of the car. So I eventually found my footing. Um, that, that's but, that's good to know. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have to be perfect to be in the industry. Right. You just got to um, be able to that. perform the job that's at least asked, right? Yeah, yeah. and be really nice to work with. Yes. <laughs> Please. Um, 
because if you're you're a jerk um it's a really great way to not have people want to work with you right right so, just part, just part know, of this, as a part of this podcast is trying to make sure that I make sure people understand that it's more than just the horror stories that do get leaked out there in the world when it comes to working in the industry. Yeah. I always kind of equate it to the, I mean, granted, I will not shy away from the fact that there are problems in the industry and there are things that we must address and there are things that, you know, we must fight as a community, um, you know, on that front. But I also kind of equate them to Yelp reviews where the majority of people are cool and good to work with and, um, you know, make working at a studio a lot of fun, but you, you kind of only see, or you kind of mostly see the bad side of things where right. it's like <laughs> the waiter didn't take my drink order fast enough. Like, you know, um, that, you know, it's not a industry, but at the end of the day, like there is, it, there is a mix and there is definitely good in the industry. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I wouldn't be here. I, I love working with people. I love working in the industry. Um, and I, I consider it a a privilege to be able to be inside um, the kind of magic to try to help foster some change that I think is definitely necessary, you know? Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, I know that for me, it just reminds me of a metaphor similar to what you're saying that my dad likes to say when it comes to like remembering people. It's like if you go to a restaurant and have like a good experience, you know, the waiter's fine, the food, you enjoy it more than anything else. But then you go to a, a different restaurant the waiter is absolutely atrocious. The food is absolutely disgusting. Oh, yeah. You're more than likely to remember the bad stuff. That's why people remember yeah. my sister more than they remember me. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> but aside from the point, it's one of those, like, obviously there are, there are those people, there are those experiences out there, but for the most part, like, especially if you're one of, you know, the, the better reliable people, as you can probably attest, you'll definitely always find your, a, a place in this industry. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think it's so important to, you know, they talk about being the total package. Um, and I think people attribute that phrase to uh, skill as opposed to the concept of what a total package means. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yes, you have to be highly skilled to be in this industry. Of course you do. Um, but you also have to be really nice to work with. And you also have to have decent time management. And you want, like, so that's kind of part of the total package. Like, there are other things to work on, other things to focus on other than just pencil to paper yeah you know, um i think i think we are we as an industry are thank goodness pushing starting to push out the people who are not so nice to work with um you know we're we're, we're starting to tolerate um what what they uh, in the industry call brilliant assholes uh, <laughs> we're starting to tolerate those people less there you um, go and i think that that is uh a very good thing. <laughs> it, it, okay. it should be a very good thing because the less brilliant assholes there are out there, the better. Um, yeah. There are plenty of brilliant people who aren't assholes. So. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Just the confidence that comes with being an asshole um, that that end up getting people in positions where um, perhaps it would would have been better suited to somebody who was a little bit nicer. Yeah. But I think sometimes arrogance is mistaken for confidence, and um, yeah. I think we're sort of, sort of slowly starting to realize that that's not the case. There we go. There we go. Going back to your like animation journey a little bit, because again, like I said, you're you're very well traveled and all this kind of stuff. You know, with all these different experiences, we talked about having your first experience being a prop designer for Seventeen. How that's kind of benefited your character design. I forgot mm-hmm. to ask this sooner. What exactly is it about character design that like intrigued you and wants you to pursue that more than anything else? 
I think the concept of, uh, you know, I think when I was a kid, it was that, you know, I want to be a, t Disney, a 2D Disney animator. Like, that was the thing of being an animator, um, you know. Uh, and I think the idea of acting with something... <laughs> I liked the idea of acting, mm. um, and I like the idea of portraying a character, but I am not the person that wants to go on stage. So to be able to tell stories through different um, points of view and through different um, for people, for lack of a better word, you know, through through different characters, I think was, um, you know, something I really, really enjoyed um, doing. So I was always drawn like when I was doing fan art in high school. It was I was always drawing the characters, you know. I was okay. always drawing. Where I was always drawing, you know, Spike from from Cowboy Bebop, or I was always drawing, you know, you know, any number of of you know characters that I like, or I, you know, copying the when I was copying the VHS boxes, you know, of, oh. of the movies when I was a kid. Like I would never copy the background; I always copied the characters because um, those were the most interesting to me. Yeah. Um, so I think the concept of uh, telling stories through the characters was the most um what's the word i guess intriguing yeah. to me he's the most enticing to me um because i don't consider myself an actor um but i do design i do design characters that can act for sure um you know i think as an actor you have a certain range that you can play but as a character designer you have you know you can design an entire cast to act through so i feel like it's just a a much more broad way of, um, you know, telling stories through different personalities. I mean, that's, so that was absolutely, that's absolutely fair enough. I was going to say, what would be in your opinion with all that you've done so far, what would be like the biggest hurdle or like the toughest part about being a character designer for those that may be curious on potentially going into that for their animation field? That's a tough question because I feel like, you know, I'm still, I'm still learning. Okay. Um, still um trying to be a better designer i think i will always be in that mindset where um you know trying to be a better character designer you know how can i design this character so that way their personality comes through just by looking at them without having to hear them open their mouth um i think the biggest turtle that i overcame in my career was marrying the concept of development and conceptual work um, okay you know, um, expressions and poses and sort of exploring the essence of who the character is and then the technical aspect of being a designer because you could, you can draw, you know, characters in a bunch of different scenarios and you can draw expression sheets, um, you know, you can, you can create an entire story for this character, but if you can't, if you don't have the technical prowess of being able to actually turn them in space or understand how their mouth moves or understand you know how they actually physically are constructed then you've only done half of the job right. you know i think people tend to overlook it's either one or the other either people will tend to overlook the technical side of things and just be highly conceptual um you know or people sort of do the thing that is a little bit harder to control which is they're so technically perfect that their characters don't have any life to them Right. Um, so it's the marriage of the essence of the character with the actual physical construction of them, um, which I think people 
assume that there is just one side to character design that's just well just designs you know a character for the story and it's like yeah but there are you can break that down you know uh into two you know at, at very least you know two different parts aspects of design which is yeah you have to design the character's personality but you also have to be able to physically draw them properly so that they can they can be animated you know because you're going to send this design off especially if you're in 2d like me um you're going to send this design off to you know an animation studio to move and if the animators can't move it you didn't do your job you know it could be a beautiful illustration, but if they can't move, then you're not a character designer, you're an illustrator, you know? So I think that was a big part of my career that I found myself plateauing because my technical, I wasn't, it's not that I didn't have the technical skills to do it. I just wasn't paying attention. I was okay. letting things kind of slide. Um, in, in, um, I was letting things slide, um, in lieu of doing the more fun things, which is the development thing. But then I realized, no, 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 you have to do both. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just do one. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that was the biggest thing to kind of realize where it's, no, you have you have two sides of a pencil you have to sharpen. Right? Exactly. I mean, it's one of those I can imagine, especially for something like that. Like, it, it's nice to have all these, like, extravagant ideas with the conceptual aspect. But if there's no way to properly bring that to life with the technical aspect then the project isn't going to go as smoothly as people would like to especially with yeah, exactly. what you're doing yeah i mean that was a big thing on arlo where um it took us forever to get his turnaround because that snout that was tough yeah. to turn <laughs> i can only imagine i mean the benefit of working in 2d is that you can cheat things you know like his in front view his snout is lower mm -hmm. slightly than it is in his profile or it is in his three-quarter um you know, but we also have to had to do a seven eighths because he wasn't always going to be in three quarter. It would have looked weird. So, um, you know, doing a twelve point turn on a character is not easy, <laughs> but it had to be done for him, and he was the hardest character to do it for in that show. Um, you know, in that film. Yeah. Um, so it really kind of like reminded me. Oh, yeah, no, you you still have to pay attention to those kinds of things. You can't just. Um, you know, you can't just be all willy-nilly and be like, well, it's it's like this, it's fine. It's like, no, no, the animators are going to get really confused and it's not going to look, you know, it's not going to have the continuity you want it to if you don't know how to properly cheat a turn or if you don't know how, you know, a character will look, you know, from the front. Front views are always the hardest because if they're, if they're off, they're really off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just fall apart from the front, so... I was gonna say I can think of how many times people like to emphasize the weird front view of certain characters that are only seen one way or another. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, uh, a couple a couple of shows come to mind where I'm like, wow, they've really avoided the front view of that character as often as they could. I was gonna say the first show that comes to me is probably the same for you, Phineas and Ferb. Like that, that, Ferb, yeah, that, that, that was like, <laughs> it's like you know, Phineas from the front can't hurt you. It's like Phineas from the front. <laughs> exactly. Oh, the classic meme. Uh. Well, I was going to say, well, since you already basically touched on the show, I just want to go all in with it. Like I established in the beginning, you are the lead character designer for Arlo, the Alligator Boy, as well as the upcoming I Heart Arlo. Um, how yeah. did that opportunity first come to you? Um, well, I um, I knew the art director uh, as an acquaintance. I, I okay. was familiar with Sanchez's work. Um, brilliant, absolutely brilliant artist. Um, he was a, I think, I believe a background designer on Star versus the Forces of Evil. Um, and then actually ended up taking over as art director on that show. Yes. And I mean, 
that show, you you can't look at that show and not think it's absolutely gorgeous. Right. So, you know, we we had we were following each other on, on social media, and you know, he would like my stuff, I would like his stuff. Um, so we were acquaintances. I mean, it's something. It's a common story that I have with thousands of people, um, you know, on social media. But I heard that uh, from a friend who was doing freelance on the on the project that he was the art director. So I was looking for work at the time. Um, and I just went on Instagram and I shot him a message and I was like, Hey man, um, you know, uh, so-and-so said that, that you guys might be staffing soon. Um, I hear you're looking for a character designer. Can I throw my hat in the ring? Like, I'd love to test. I wasn't like, Hey, can you give me a job? I was like, Hey, I would love to just, you know, if you're, if you're testing, you know, I'd love to throw my hat in the ring. Right. He was like, yeah, man. He was like, uh, that's awesome. Like shoot me an email. Um, you know, and I'll forward your, your info to, to Ryan Krigo. Um, who is the the creator and the EP on the project uh, and the director on the project. Um, and I was like, dope. I was like, the worst that could happen is they just don't get back to me. Right. Um, common, you know. Um, I think people take offense to to people ghosting them. And, I, and then I got into the industry and I'm like, I am so busy that I've accidentally ghosted people and I feel bad about it, but that's just the way, it, you know, that's just what happens sometimes. Right. Um, you know, but I emailed and then they wanted to set up an interview and I was like, awesome so uh i went in for an interview they showed me you know some of the uh work that some of the approved work um you know they showed me arlo they showed me the animation test um and then they showed me the concept work that ryan did i think ryan and i think martin wittig was the other one um his concept work for this movie was just wonderful oh, yeah. um some of that that work um and was like we're looking to you know, we're gonna. I think we're gonna try you out. Um, we're gonna have you do a page of poses of Arlo, um, and then we're gonna have you design these two other characters. And one was Aaliyah the Tiger Girl, um, and the other was Arlo's dad Ansel. Okay. Um, so those are my two characters that I tested on. Was Ar was Aaliyah and Ansel? Um, and normally <laughs> with a test, it's like I don't expect feedback. Um, I just send it in, and then like you know keep my fingers crossed and you know hope for the best um but uh i got an email back and they were like hey these are great um israel has some notes for you and he wants you to take a second pass and i was like oh my god and i was like a second pass and i was like this is great like i've never you know rarely will i ever get a second pass especially on a test right um you know and they were classifying it as freelance because it could be usable development work um and so they had to pay me for it um but you know, I did a second pass um, on, uh, I, did, I think I did a second pass. They loved what I did with Ansel, so I didn't do a second pass for Ansel, I believe. Um, and his final design is actually fairly close to what I came up with in the in the test. Okay. To, to one, of, one, of the, one of the designs I did in the test, which I thought was really funny. Um, sometimes that happens. You get a rare, a rare, you know... Uh, Rare, nailed it. <laughs> yeah, rare, rare, you know, center of the target. Um, but, uh, you know, I did a second pass on Aaliyah, and I did a second pass with Israel's notes over the, the poses of Arlo, the sheet that I did. Um, and I got a call from the line producer, who was actually my line producer at DreamWorks. Um, oh, nice. And so I knew him already. Um, and I got a call from him the day after my birthday in 2019. And they were like, hey, we want to offer you the gig. And I... I sounded like, I'm sure I sounded like a little kid on the phone. I was like, oh my God. I was like, you have no idea how much this means to me. Like, because I really wanted to be on this project. It just felt right. Um, the, the story was so much fun. 
Um, you know, the team seemed really cool. Um, and it just seemed like the kind of project that I wanted to really sink my teeth in. And they told me I got the <laughs> little vulnerable here. They, they told me I got the job um, and when I would start. And I was in the parking lot on the way to the gym. <laughs> and I hung up the phone and I sat in my car and cried. <laughs> I was so happy. I was so happy. I got that gig. I mean, I would, I would imagine so. Cause like you said, like, you know, especially all the stuff exploring with such a, a big project like this, like being able to even be in the same like vicinity as a project like that, let alone being the lead character designer for these incredible and unique characters. Like how much of a task was that for you? Because like these characters are not like they're complex and they're gorgeous in their own way. So I can only imagine how much of a task it was for you to make sure you got it just right. Um, I mean, I didn't start off as lead character designer. I just want to make that clear. I, I started off as the character designer. Um, and it was me um, and another um, brilliant designer by the name of Jackie Drushko. She was my uh, other character designer. Um, Wait a minute. She's... Sorry, sorry, I was going to say, I think I've, I've heard that name before. Does she have yeah. a short... I was like, does she have a short film called Bang Bang or something like that? Yeah, yeah, that's her. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say this is funny. It's actually kind of full circle because she has been mentioned on the podcast before. I had, really? yes, I've had the uh, team behind this independent uh, animated show called Wild Cards or Wild Card, and she actually did the character designs for those characters that's that are being made. So. Cool. so yeah, so. she was she was the other character designer um, on Arlo. Okay. Um, for. I think it was six or seven months okay. until she got scooped Netflix. Because um, this was done at Titmouse. So the, the feature was done at Titmouse, and then the series was done at Netflix. Mm. Um, so uh, she was at Titmouse at the time, and she we, we were kind of, um, you know, we were both the, we were both a character designer on the project. Um, and uh, I was doing a lot of development work on the characters, um, and... It was about, I think, five months into the production where they offered me the lead gig because okay. of, I kind of like stepped up um, and was doing cor like corrections um, on on you know the other designers' work, and I was doing, you know, I was sitting with Ryan um, and Israel, and and we were really trying to figure out who these characters were. So I was kind of doing the job of a lead character designer, um, and then they offered me the job of the you know, the promotion and. Um, you know, I was ecstatic. I was like, this is wonderful. Thank you. Um, so that's how I got to be lead. Um, but yeah, it was, it was definitely the most unique set of characters I've ever designed. Yeah. Um, because their personalities are so different. Um, but they were so dimensional and rich that the exploration phase, phase was just one of the most fun times I've ever had designing characters. Um, you know, I think I think my favorite character out of all of those will forever be Birdie. I think yeah. she's my, she, she's my favorite. She's my favorite design I've ever done. Um, you know, and and she comes from a very personal place. That character. Um, you know, we were very adamant about who we wanted Birdie to be. Mm -hmm. um, Ryan was very clear that. Um, she was a big girl, but she was a strong girl and she was still sensitive and she was still um, feminine, but she wasn't afraid to get her hands dirty, but you know, she was very protective. Like she's such a multifaceted character. Right. Um, I did the most exploration on her, I think, because I just had so much fun with her. Um, 
and I and and I think I pulled a lot of my own personal references from her. Um, you know, she was very heavily inspired, of course, by Mary, who, who Mary Lambert, who voiced her. Um, but she was very heavily inspired by one of my favorite singers, who is Mama Cass, okay. Cass Elliot from the Papas. Um, very heavy, very heavily inspired by her. Um, people like Holly Mangold, who is a USA uh, weightlift, weightlifter, uh, Olympic weightlifter. Um, Dot Marie Jones, who people might know as Coach Beast from from Glee. Um, you know, Mary herself, of course. Um, but uh, I, I kind of approached her as, what if Mama Cass was a powerlifter? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> And that's how Birdie was born. But those are two very specific references to me. Yeah. You know, I I love lifting. I'm a I'm a um a big lifter. I love I love uh you know the powerlifting circuit, Olympic weightlifting, like that's a, a big um hobby of mine. And um you know, I I love Mama Cass. Like she's one of my I think she's had one of the most beautiful voices to have ever existed. Um so she was a uh, a very personal reference of mine so i think i think that's why i love her so much is that she came from such a personal place right uh, and to see the response of her specifically is yeah. has been just amazing i, I know um, in particular i think you were the one that actually retweeted this but like someone had straight up just said that this was their cartoon twin when they yeah had that yeah i can only imagine how how like i, I don't want to say satisfied but how much how great it was for you to just see like people instantly connect or people connecting with that character. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that was like, whenever I see that happen, um, specifically with birdie, it just, it makes my heart really happy because I think it's important for people to be able to see themselves on screen. Um, and not just in the background, you know, birdie is such a vital part of that story. You know, that story couldn't exist without birdie. Right. Uh, So, seeing her be the hero, seeing her be, you know, such an important part of Arlo's life and the kind of personality she has and, you know, her likes and her hobbies. And, and I think she is such a dimensional character that, um, you know, watching people connect with her is, is just wonderful. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the most satisfying things, uh, about, about this, this job, um, is seeing people see themselves in your work that's flattering like that's that is the highest that is the highest compliment somebody can give you you know because because I, I imagine for you like especially working with the character design aspect like you're you said yourself like you put a lot of references and a lot of stuff that was personal to you into birdie and that was probably the case with just about any one of these characters like these characters are as much of a part of you as anyone else on that production and to see people like instantly ah. connecting with that i i like it must be like an eye-opening experience for you at times it is and i think i want to um I, I want to not reiterate, but I, I want to stress how much character design is a communal effort. Mm-hmm. Like just because I was a lead character designer doesn't mean that I take credit for all of those characters. Right. You know, I did design the final versions of all those characters. Um, Rough, Rough and Stucky were designed um, by a good friend of mine named Justin Rodriguez. He also had a big hand in designing Arlo. Um, you know, but there were a bunch of people who worked on that that production, either in freelance development um, or on the production that had a big hand in why these characters look the way that they do. Right. You know, um, 
whether that was verbal input or visual input, you know, they these characters were not designed wholly by me. You know, they existed before I did, and they will continue to exist after I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was a it was a very big group effort. Um, Arlo was basically 95% of the way there by the time I got there. So, right. you know, I, I only take credit for how he looks from the front, and that's just me figuring out how that nose works, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I put my own personal stylistic spin on things, sure, because um, that's what you do as a designer. That's the kind of, um, you know, Ryan was so wonderful to work with because he was so collaborative, mm -hmm. um, and he encouraged, you know, putting yourself in there. Um, he, of course, had the things that he was looking for, and he had... Um, you know, his notes and, um, you know, his vision, but um, I was able to sort of stylistically put myself in there too. Right. Um, so, you know, Birdie, I kind of did from, I don't know, there was, there was, there was a bunch of um, development work for her, but nobody could kind of really nail that design. Okay. Um, so I'd say she was, I don't know. 30% of the way there, 33% of the way there. So there was, there was always development work. There's usually always going to be development work that has been done before you even get there. Right. Uh, and that's important to use as a jumping off point because there are some things that um, really work about some of those development drawings. So using them as kind of a springboard, um, you know, the, 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 I just, I'm in super Olympics mode because I just have been watching it for the last two weeks, but it's like How the gymnast can't. Yeah, the gymnast can't do the vault without the springboard, you know. So even though they they perform the vault and they have to land the, the you know, um, they have to land this, they couldn't do it without the springboard. So you you need that kind of foundation. You need that um, kind of blue sky face to really own the characters. And whether you're doing it or somebody else is doing it is irrelevant because I think just at the end of it, character design is such a collaborative effort at the, you know, to begin with. So um it was nice to kind of pull people's what I liked about some people's um, exploration and um, in, of course, inject my own references into it. Uh, it was, it was really cool to be a part of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I can only imagine like, you know, on top of like putting the references or whatnot, at least when it comes to like designing some of these characters, it's right up your alley because based on some of your previous work, like you haven't shied away from doing like the anthropomorph anthropomorphic animals and such with personal work and such. Like, what is it about, that aspect or whatnot intrigues you when it comes to like designing people or just drawing stuff in character. Like what is it about animals that makes you like as a character designer, what is it about animals that gets your attention? Um, I think animals have, you know, of course people are diverse and, and, you know, there's a million different ways to, to draw um, humans, but I think the animal kingdom has such, has exponentially more shape shapes and personalities into it than people do. And sometimes I feel like um, when drawing human characters, I still reference the personalities of some animals. Like when you think of a, you know, gruff, rough, um, you know, uh, sturdy character, like a rhino comes to mind or a hippo comes. Like there, there are certain animals that we think of immediately, like, you know, what's your spirit animal? Like people have always kind of, People have always sort of uh, related their personalities to animals from the beginning anyway. You know, um, I mean, anthropomorphic, um, you know, or human-animal hybrids have existed for 
since the dawn of man. I mean, that's where the entire, you know, Egyptian pantheon comes from. I mean, yeah. it's all just, you know, um, you know, Set or Anubis or, you know, Wepowet or any, any, any of the Sobek, like any of the, you know, Egyptian gods, um, they're always half animal because there's a specific um, attribute to that animal that would, that, that, uh, lended itself to this, you know, the myth of the story or the, or the religion. Um, so I find animals, animals to be a tool that I use, um, to design more well-rounded characters. Like Ansel's a bird man, yes, but his human side looks bird-like. Like I based him off of, you know, a blue jay. Yeah. And or or a crow or any of the I, you know I had a bunch of bird references for him because, you know, and how many times have you have you seen somebody draw a, you know, kind of stuffy, you know, stuck up butler that looks like a bird like that? Yeah. People automatically make those visual references, you know. Um, so I was like, what's the difference between me drawing a human and drawing an animal? Like, what's the difference? It's still the same kind of personality. So I find animals much more fun to draw because of the different um features like birds have beaks you know big cats their snouts look different than canine snouts and you know uh alligators have different features than fish people like it's just it's it's it, it was kind of a natural a way the way that might work naturally took a turn some people naturally draw humans i naturally draw animals i love animals i've always loved going to the zoo and drawing them like it's just I love the the diversity and characterizations of it that I can get from animals. There we go. I'm assuming one of your favorite films growing up was probably Lion King. <laughs> like that was the first I was how old was I? I was like I think I was five when that movie came out. Oh, okay. Um, and five or six. Um and I made my mom take me back like five times. To me. And that was theaters. Like back when Disney had the vault, and like you had to wait a year and a half for it to come out on VHS. You know, right. um, you know, I made my mom take me back like five times. I love that movie so much. Um, I, I don't blame you. I know that's one of my older brother's like favorite movie. I'm pretty sure the VHS we have of it is very worn out, but it still works. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I loved that movie. Um, I was always drawn to the animal characters. Like I loved Robin Hood. Robin Hood as a kid, oh, you know. Yeah. Parents, my parents did it right and and raised me on all the Disney movies that existed. Even when I was born, you know. Um, you know, even like Oliver and Company and and Fox and the Hound and and Robin Hood. Um, you know, even the characters that kind of came out after you know I was born, like characters like Mushu or characters like. You know, Miko and Flit from from Pocahontas. Like yeah. those were the characters. For some reason, I was drawn to those kinds of characters because, um, especially with a character like Miko, like he doesn't talk. He has no lines except for like noises. But you know exactly what he's thinking. Oh yeah. So it was a study on how to, um, you know, looking back on it, it was a study on how to portray a character's personality when you don't have the luxury of having dialogue. You can't explain it with words. So how do you explain it? visually you know um and i that's a big part of being a character designer is being able to portray who a character is before they even have lines on a page right right and i imagine that's probably also shown well with like i said the most recent project that should be coming out i heart arlo 
I was going to ask mm-hmm. a, a second ago, but has the process working on that show, was it different than working on the feature film? Or is, was it fairly the same? In fact, that it's all inter, you know, like related with the original movie. It was different because the, the movie was, I mean, it was, it was a sped up feature schedule, um, but there was much more blue sky with the movie, like blue sky development with um, the movie. And for, for those of you that don't know the phrase blue sky, um, it's the, it's the, process in development where you just literally draw you throw everything at the wall and see what sticks okay you know it's you do all the crazy wild things that you don't think might you know that you don't think are going to work but you do it anyway and then all of a sudden some little random tidbit from that wild crazy design like ends up making it into the final design because it was just it sort of hit who the core of the character is um so it was the kind of like fun blue sky stage of things. Um, and we had a production schedule. So like we, we broke the film up into six different reels. Okay. Um, and we had a specific amount of time to do um, the assets that we needed for those reels. So like, for example, we were, we had to design all the main characters before production started because you, you, you can't do anything without the main characters. Right. Um, but when you get into production, like I'm not going to take the time during the blue sky phase to design the alligator that Arlo, you know, jumps on during more, more, more. Like that's not a good use of my time that I can do in production. So basically production goes through and, and, you know, some kind of scrubs each reel um, and says, okay, these are, these are the, the characters that we need designed. Like we needed, you know, a bunch of animals for, um, the swamp scenes and we needed to make sure that um, you know they if they needed a turnaround that we did those turnarounds we we made sure that um, you know if people in the background once he gets to you know Willow Button like we had to design all the background characters we're not going to design those during the development phase we're, we're going to design those as they come up as we're working through the movie right. um, you know so it was a different it was a different production schedule um, for the movie and then for the TV show, it was very much a standard TV production schedule, um, which is, you know, you have a little bit of a development phase, which I which I worked on um, to make sure that they were um, suitable for television animation because the animation schedule for it is truncated. Um, you know, the feature had a little bit more time to play with when it came to animation. Right. Um, TV is, is, is very much go, go, go. Like, you know, we got to get this out. Um, this is our, our drop date and we're not changing it. Um, so uh, on the television schedule side of things, it was you know a small development phase to make sure that the characters that were done in the movie were, you know, sometimes it had to be simplified a little bit. Like there, the hairs on Tony's tail are not going to be in the TV show because that's an extra line for the animators to draw, and they don't need to do that, you know. Right. Um, like um, simplifying, uh, you know, Birdie has two stitch lines on the bottom of her dress. Uh, in the movie in the series she only has one because you didn't need the second one you know like you have much more money frankly and much more time to draw the additional details on a feature than you do on a, te- on a television show okay um kind of like what we did before production started and then once production started um you know every single week we got a new episode um to work on and then we would have to produce the the characters that belonged to the, the extra characters that belonged in that episode like there was the lobster lady in the um, in the trailer, like we had to design her. And then there was, 
you know, Tony's parents were also in the trailer. Um, we had to design them, but those were done on a weekly basis. So it was like, you have a week to design all of the characters. It was like me, there were, I think three or four character designers on the I Heart Arlo show, whether freelance or on staff. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, for the most part, it was like we had a week to finish an episode. Um, and then it gets shipped off to color, you know, and our color stylist took over. Um, but it was a very truncated schedule, and that's just a typical television schedule. So yeah. uh, much more time to sort of sit with things on the movie than we did on the television show. But um, I don't think the quality of the uh, TV show um, has dipped in any way from the movie think that you find the tricks uh, and animation that you can do for a television schedule. Um, you just have a little bit more time with a, a feature schedule, which I prefer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. And I, I'm not going to ask you to spoil anything because one, I'm pretty sure that'd be NDA, but also, hey, the show's going to be coming out tomorrow. You should be watching it oh. anyway. But for those who may not be aware, what should they expect when they watch I Heart Arlo? Which, like, yeah, what should we expect from the show? Well, uh, I mean, the movie was all about him sort of finding his place. Um, you know, and he found his, his new home in Seaside with all of his friends. You know, he has, it's that found family trope, mm-hmm. um, which as, as, as a gay person is, is so vital. Like it was such a big, um, that was also very personal to me, you know, um, that found family trope. Right. Uh, but now you get to kind of watch Arlo and his friends make that place their home. Okay. You know, it's not just about, you know, you don't just move into an apartment and set your bags on and be like, great, I'm home. Like, everything is great. You know, there's nothing to get used to, you know. Um, right. There's an adjustment period. And I, and I think um, people are going to have a lot of fun watching Arlo and his friends kind of make Seaside their home. Uh, there will be songs. It's it's definitely still a musical. Oh, yeah. Um, and the songs slap just as hard as the movie did. So, <laughs> you know. Uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 a lot of fun. They get into a lot of adventures um, and a little trouble. And uh, no, it's gonna be it's a lot of fun. Um, it's it's a continuation of the vibe that you get from the movie, but it's also a little bit of a, a new. Um, it's a new challenge thrown at the characters, so they they're go, they're going to have um, you know new ways of 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 dealing with new challenges. So right, it's gonna yeah. be fun. Hopefully it'll start with that pizza place finally getting that taken care of. Yeah. Um, well, as as the trailer said, it needs the most work. <laughs> yeah, it needs the most work. Um, I I did want to focus on this for just a, a second because you did kind of point it out, but it's one of those with the found family trope. You know, you said that as a gay person, it relates to you a lot in that certain circumstance. Was that another reason why you wanted to join on this project, or like it, having that kind of experience? Did it sort of motivate you? It's like I feel like I should help out with telling that story. Um, I don't think it was a, um, yes, yeah. You know what? I'm going to say yeah. Um, I, I think that the found family trope is a common trope, but not an old trope. Right. So, and what I mean by that is it's not worn out. I think you can, you can do that found family trope, um, in a million different ways. And I think it's still important to tell because, you know, even though I do have very loving and accepting parents, you know, I'm very lucky in that sense where I'm very supported by my, where my, 
excuse me, I'm very supported by my family. Um, there might be a kid out there that does not have that experience. Right. And I think the biggest, I mean, obviously I didn't know this when I, when I got hired, but I think the most important scene in that movie was when at the end Ansel invites Arlo, who is his biological child, to come live with him. And Arlo says, no, he, he lives with his, the people who he found along the way. He lives with the people who I'm sure Ansel loves him. I know Ansel loves him, mm-hmm. you know, but these people love him too. You know, these, these characters love him too. And he found his place with them and he doesn't reject his father outright. You know, he Ansel's a very big part of the series. You know, he um, is a big part of Arlo's life. Arlo loves him. You know, Arlo recognizes him as his father. Um, but the importance um, for a gay person to say, you know, I have people who I go do things with and I share things with um, and I connect with, and that's different than the relationship I have with my parent, I think was incredibly important because, um, you know, I think it, it, it's a, it was a shock for Ansel to invite Arlo to live with him. And Arlo's like, no, I'm good. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have my people, I have my place and it's with them. So, I mean, it was, I think that's, it was definitely it was definitely a very touching story and like you said for experience for it's experience that i guess it's it's humbling to see in in sort of a a visual form like that yeah totally um and it's comforting too yeah comforting. Um, that's where i was looking for my bad (laughs) it's very comforting um and i hope some gay kid um who might be unsure of themselves you know some some gay kid in high school watches that movie and says oh no there's there's more out there you know if my parents aren't necessarily supportive or you know if they won't recognize who i am there there are people out there that that will and will celebrate it which i think is very important exactly exactly that that's that's the most important thing at the end of the day but obviously with you know that show and and that movie like you your time is definitely being recognized through there but it's not like you even really slow down you're still working at you know you still gotta pay the bills at the end of the day but also you've got your own personal projects on the side that you've illustrated a lot through your personal website that i did a lot of my research for i will be honest um one of the ones that grabbed my attention was the arcanist tarot cards yeah the tarot deck what exactly inspired you to go forth to try to produce that um well i actually i collected them in high school so i i Collected tarot decks, um, you know, I was never any good at reading them. I didn't really know how to, I actually, <laughs> full, full disclosure, I didn't know how to read tarot when I was designing the deck. Um, oh. So I was flying blind, uh, did a lot of research, but I had always wanted to design one just because of the sheer scale of the amount of work, like the amount of designs that you could do. It was so interpretive. Um, so it really, again, was supposed to come from a personal place. You know, there are so many tarot decks that are different. Um, it, they're not all just based on the Rider weight, which is kind of the standard deck. Um, it's the vanilla ice cream of, of tarot decks. It's like everybody knows vanilla. Everybody has had a vanilla ice cream cone. Like, nobody hates vanilla. You know, right. like, nobody going to be like, I don't like vanilla ice cream. Like, very few people are going to say that. Um, you know, and, and that deck was so important for research, too. But um, if you branch out and you look at tarot decks um in general there's a lot of independent decks that are coming out now um there are a lot of 
um, highly interpretive, um, sometimes minimalist. Um, they can, they, and they range, again, they range from highly minimalist to highly illustrative. Um, so it really is all dependent on the creator. And, um, you know, I was participating in Inktober that year. This was 2016. Oh, okay. This is a while back. I should have asked this sooner. My bad. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I still get inquiries about it, and I still consider it a very formative time in my career. Right. Um, it taught me a lot about shape language um, and and um, simplicity because I couldn't be complicated with that deck because of the style that I established for myself. Right. Um, so I was, I was I was in a timeshare in Orlando, Florida, <laughs> uh, with my godson um, and you know his dad who uh, and his mom who are who are like like family of me they're they're some of my best friends um you know and their daughter um you know so they they went on a family vacation they they asked me to come um and you know we were all in a timeshare with um, my friend's mom and i still wanted to participate in inktober so i just i brought just kind of like a minimal amount of supplies i brought um you know a, a pack of watercolor paper um a kuratake pen which i still love to draw with um it's a, a brush pen that is just has the most amazing line quality nice um and one one copic marker okay. it was a red marker. And i was like okay i'll just do some minimal things and i you know i was participating in inktober that year and um i don't i think i had just watched the witch which was the um you know what's that like to live deliciously like the the black philip movie that everybody likes to reference oh, yeah yeah um, I um and uh i was like whatever i'll just you know oh, i'll draw the devil like fun like goat goat devil um you know it was what i could kind of think of and i was like oh i have a red marker like cool like let's draw it um and i kept my shape simple because i'm uh my traditional work tends to be simpler than my digital work because i can't use all the tricks that i use in my digital work so right. it's me to work on my pure skill as opposed to what i can hide with filters <laughs> so, uh so um you know i did this this uh this little devil design and i posted it because i usually post all my um you know my inktobers um and i realistically only get through like a week or a week and a half of inktober and then i fall off the bandwagon uh, but i posted it and my best friend commented uh he was like this is how you should do your tarot deck and i was like Ooh. oh my god like that's a great idea um so i kind of sat with that idea for a little bit and then i just kind of started drawing random cards of the major arcana which is the first 22 cards of the deck mm -hmm. uh, you know i started kind of doing a little bit of research and i was like what if i did an animal deck you know i like drawing animals like um what if i did this in kind of this minimalist simplistic style um because i had i had kind of been in a rut with my work at that point gotcha um, so it took me a little bit but i kind of established this quote-unquote visual language for that deck by creating a set of rules for myself like i wasn't allowed to um outline like i couldn't outline the figure and then color it in okay. like everything had to be um based in shape you know, and then you, I could I could use the black on top of some of the colors, but I I couldn't be super extensive about it. Um, so it was always black, white, and then one color. Um, the, with the uh, the outlier being the world card, which is sort of the culmination of your um, 
you know your endeavors or what you're trying to accomplish and that's that's the only full color card um but it was always black white and one color and I, I sort of established this visual rule set for myself um and i did the first 22 in a month which is how that's how inspired i was yeah. um and i did it i did it so fast that i was able to make like um you know uh self-published like little mag cloud like you know blurb.com kind of uh soft cover book that i sold at ctn that year just to kind of gauge response and people loved it um you know i sold some prints of of those uh cards i still sell prints of those cards um because people like them um i still get inquiries about the deck of if, if, if i'm reprinting um that is to be determined um i'm speaking with my uh publishing agent right now about it um but so we'll see i i don't have a final answer on, on that um, but we're we're working on it, and um, you know, I I got enough feedback where I was like, this is actually a thing that could could work. Um, and I had never done Kickstarter before, but I knew it was going to be very expensive, and I did not have the funds to do it. Right. Um, or flat out. Um, so I did a Kickstarter, um, and I did it for the deck and a companion book. Um, and I would do it a little bit differently now, but. You know, I was, this is my first foray into, into, you know, this kind of thing. And, um, you know, I worked out the costs, uh, and I did a Kickstarter and I made what I needed to make, uh, the Kickstarter was successful. So I was able to produce the book and the deck. Um, and I sold it until I ran out <laughs> until I ran out of decks. People loved it. Um, so I was very, um, grateful for that, but it taught me a, how to read tarot and, um, be the kind of um you know what's the word not motivation because motivation i have a problem with the word motivation but um the kind of effort that it took to um the kind of effort it took to 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 produce a project of that magnitude because it was 78 cards it was not small and then i had to right. design the box with and i'm not a packaging designer by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> So, so, um, you know, I look back at the box and I'm like, oh, you could do better. Um, but, uh, I was really proud of myself. Um, and my sister helped me with the book, um, cause she's an excellent writer. Um, and, um, you know, it was a successful project by, by all, you know, by any, any, you know, means you want to talk about it. And I was very, um, excited to do it. And I still get inquiries about the deck. Yeah. Um, I unfortunately don't have any more decks to sell. No. Um, hopefully I will in the future. Hopefully I will. I, I'd like to do a reprinting of that deck um, just because I, I loved doing it so much. It was oh, a yeah. really great deck. Like um, and there are things I learned, and I, I, I will change, um, but the core uh, essence of the deck will not change. Right. I, I, still, I still love that project that I did. I mean, I don't blame you. I was seeing kind of the designs that you had up, and, like, by God, I can only imagine – like the time and effort that went into that, but like it turned out absolutely wonderful. And I can see some of the inspirations that you talked about at the very beginning, you know, yeah. with all the different, like, you know, the Egyptian or like the Aztec influence onto those like terror, terror decks and such. I can imagine with that. And also another thing I noticed on your site, and you correct me about this. Are you into wood carving as well? Uh, I doubt I'm not like, you know, a, a, I wouldn't consider myself a wood carver. It's just, I am, I am, I don't consider myself anything. I kind of, <laughs> am one of those, <laughs> I'm kind of one of those people that, um, I'll try anything once. Okay. 
Okay. I will experiment with anything once. I don't give myself, I don't pigeonhole myself into using anything specific. Right. Um, I've never done wood carving and I'm like, I really want to do that. I'll just do it. And if it doesn't work out or I hate it, okay, well, I did it once. I realized I didn't like it or I loved it. Um, you know, and that will kind of inform my decision going forward. I love doing wood, wood stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I just haven't had the time lately to do it. Fair enough. Um, I do love it. Um, like that Spider-Man that I did on, on my page, yeah. uh, that, um, that was done for my friend's birthday. Um, and that was carved from a solid piece of wood. Like, uh, that was purely sanded and carved by, um, and that was a lot of work, but yeah. uh, I had fun doing it. It's just, I need time to do that. And I'm working on so much freelance, um, stuff right now that I just don't have time to devote to it right. at the moment, but I would like get, to get back into it. Cause I want to start using things like a Dremel and, and things to kind of get little details, um, because I, I love sculpting. Um, I, I absolutely love it and I, I don't do it enough. Um, so it's just, to me, wood is just another medium of sculpture, just like clay or, or anything like that. Fair um, enough. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to use anything once. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Well, I was going to say, like, you know, with dabbling in all these different kind of art forms with your own personal artwork that you do on your spare time, as well as, like I said, the tarot cards that you've done in the past, I just have to know with all this personal art that you've done, how is that? affected and maybe bettered your art for the professional sense like with the freelance and all these different gigs that you're getting you know it's funny they kind of actually inform each other um oh, really because i'm yeah i mean i think the thing that people sort of um misinterpret is that you know you as a an artist have a style and that is unchangeable and unshakable and um you know it it you know, the, the work that you do to match style and production is, is completely different than the work that you do um, personally. And I've found that they they inform each other quite more often than I would initially have anticipated. Um, if I'm working on a production and I'm, I'm working in a particular style, uh, I might like the way that noses are drawn and I might start incorporating them into my personal work. You know, okay. the way eyes are done or, you know, the way you know, certain shapes interact with each other, like that might inform my personal work and vice versa. I might take my shape heavy design sense and impart it into um, development work that I'm doing, you know, for whatever studio I'm doing it for. Um, so they tend to, to, to co you know, cohabitate more often than, than we think. Right. Um, and I, I enjoy doing my personal work just as much as I, um, enjoy doing the studio work and i feel like i don't treat my studio work as if it was a job um but at the same time um you know it's not my project so as much as i put myself into it at the end of the day it's not wholly mine so being able to go home and do something that is wholly mine um is just as important to me um because it, it keeps me it keeps me creatively fulfilled. You know, if I'm just doing and that's it's it's definitely different for everybody. You know, I know people that are like I'm just good with doing um you know, the work that I do at the, at at my job and then I'm, you know, I don't want to do art when I get home. I want to play music or I want to go bike riding or I want to you know, I I I you know, uh, I want to go dance. I want to go do something. I have a hobby that my personal time is devoted to, but part of my hobby has always been drawing. Right. So even though I have other hobbies, 
um, drawing is still uh, included in the rotation for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. I can only imagine, especially with all the incredible stuff that you've either had a hand in or produced yourself. I mean, seriously, like I cannot get enough of the art that oh, you've made as a whole. Thank um, you. Um, thank you. Well, speaking of the art that you've done, I want to go more or less into the dream scenario, if I may. Let's say yeah. I am big shot Mr. Moneybags. I come to you and I'm like, look, David, we've seen just about everything you've done. We absolutely cannot get enough of it. We have access to everyone and anyone in the industry, and we have more money than there should be in the world. Seriously, we should probably give it to like homeless people or something like that. Um, if given the opportunity, what would be the dream David project? Jeez, that's really hard. Um, I don't know if I could just pick one. Okay. Jeez. That's a really good question. Um, I have two books in mind that I would love to see done in animation. Okay. One has been done in animation, but I want to see a modern version of it, and that's The Phantom Tollbooth, okay. um, which was one of my favorite books as a kid um, by Norton Jester. Great, great story. The visual, um, very doll-like, as in rolled doll, very, very doll-like. It's very fantastical. Um, just a great kid's book. Um, and I think if, if I was like, well, you, you have to make an adult animation i think i would try to do an animated version of dante's inferno oh um, okay that was such a book for me in high school like it it got me into philosophy okay um i love philosophy i'm you know a big a big fan um of of the philosophical kind of side of, of uh life uh big alan watts fan big Carl Jung fan um but um it got me into philosophy and you know, that was my, my favorite teacher um, in high school. I had an English teacher who was amazing, uh, who still is amazing. She still teaches there. And one social studies teacher who passed away, unfortunately, a couple years after I, I was in high school, who um, had me read that book. They had, he had the whole class read that book, but it really kind of like unearthed this desire for knowledge in me that didn't exist in school at all for me so it was like it was such, it was a thing that i could kind of hyper focus on and um really sink my teeth into and again dante in the what 13 or 1400s uses such vivid imagery in that uh, in that in that book but i've seen people do it in a bunch of different ways like there was i think in the 90s or early 2000s there was a version of the inferno the purgatorio and the paradiso um that was done, I think it was um, like in an urban decay kind of style. Like it was done with, it was done in New York, but okay. like a version of New York. Um, you know, a hell, a, a, a purgatory and a, and a, a heaven. Um, and it kind of made me realize like, oh, you don't have to just stick to the text. Like you can put this anywhere you want. Right. Um, so I would love, if, if, if you ask me if I could do any think i had access unlimited access to money talent whatever i would do dante's inferno i think there we go there we go that'd be something interesting to 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 see because uh, like you said there have been interpretations of that in the past but like i can only imagine especially with like i said some seeing some of the stuff that you've had a hand in and seeing some of the artwork that you have out there kind of the influence you can kind of have on that i can imagine like especially for you with such like ancient influence that you've had with some of your art before like how much of a yeah. visual representation it'd be yeah, I mean, I I pull from so many different types of folk art and um, 
you know, um, either ancient art or, or just um, other cultural influences like, um, you know, the Bayou Tapestry. Yeah. It was like a huge thing, like, it's all representational, you know, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, Mayan art, Aztec art, um, but of course, ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. um, you know, all that stuff, Polynesian, um, and, and um, uh, Inuit art are also two big, uh, huge shape influences. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Dante's Inferno would be so... And I feel like that's such a weird answer coming from me because people think of my work as kind of cute. But <laughs> that's where my influence from... I And uh, people have heard me say this before, but um, my biggest... If you were going to talk about my biggest like artistic influence, like not cultural influence, but biggest artistic influence, um, the illustrator that has influenced me the most is probably Richard Scarry. Okay. Um, you know, uh, busy town and, and, you know, the, all those wonderful golden books uh, I had as a kid, Richard Scarry is my biggest influence. Um, but I like to remind people that, um, in Richard Scarry's busy town, you know, every animal has a job, but the butcher's a pig and he sells bacon. So, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's it's always an interesting reminder of everything else. Yeah. It's just his, his humor. And there's that little bit of like, wait a minute, hold up. Like, there's something there's something happening here uh, that um, you know I like to kind of impart in my work like even my kind of cuter work I like to have a little bit of a darker twinge yeah. to it. It's like there's a laughter to it, but it's like a, a slightly sinister laugh, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can have fun with that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, we talked about the dream scenario, but let's let's get back down to reality for a little bit, and I'll ask the ever so generic question. Where do you hope to see yourself, say, five to ten years from now? You know, I think that's a really difficult question for me to answer um, because I could say a number of different studios. I could say a number of different projects that I hope to be working on. But at the end of the day, I hope to just be a better artist. There you Um, go. And I think when I was younger, you know, it was that kind of like, I hope I work at Disney or I hope I work at so-and-so. But I think being in the industry and the experiences that I've had kind of proved to me that this industry is evolving so fast um, and is so ever-changing that the thing that I want to do might not exist anymore in five or ten years or the thing that I want to do might evolve into something that I don't want to do anymore right so I, at the end of the day I just I want to know if I could see myself in the future I wouldn't know what I wouldn't want to know where I'd be working I wouldn't know what what project I want to be on but I I would want to know that I'm still just as inspired and um have just as much of a love for um, learning and growing and being a better artist as I do now. Um, I just want to be a better artist. I always want to be a better artist. I mean, um, that's a good mentality I mean, to have, yeah. nothing else. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean just like technically better. Right. You know, of course, I want to hone my skills. I'll be honing my skills until I, you know, drop dead, but um, <laughs> which helps for a long time. Um, we but, can hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but at the end of the day, like coming up with new ideas and um, I think that's where I find the most joy, like the tarot deck, um, the tiger plush. Um, you know, I have an idea for a, a, um, an independent game that I'm I'm kind of finagling with right now. Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I just dip my toes into whatever I possibly can. Like, um, if I if it if it exists and I have some, you know, atom of my of my soul that wants to try it, I'm going to try it. Um, so, I just want to be able to be that inspired for the rest of my life um, whether it's five years or 50 years like 
to just love creating art just as much as I do now. There you go. And uh, you got to keep me in the loop about the independent video game, especially if you need voice acting. I I'm available. I'm just looking for the experience, if nothing else. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I have, it's, it's still very much in its infancy. It's still a little seed right now. Right. Um, I have to find, I have to find the right soil to plant it in so it doesn't die. Um, <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, uh, you know, we'll think. Okay. Uh, well, as we're winding down this interview, I just have one last question that I want to ask. Obviously, like, you know, speaking of making sure that the seeds are being rooted, you are deeply rooted in art at this point, art and animation and music, wood carving, all sorts of different aspects of art. Um, how important is art, not just for you, but for the world as a whole? I think that society as a whole can't exist without art. Um, I think that, um, you know, I saw a, it was like an article or, a, some list that some media giant, whatever, um, created and they were like the, the most, um, like what are the most essential jobs and what are the least essential jobs? I saw that and one too. <laughs> yeah, and the top thing was artist, and I was like, "What the hell did the artist who designed this web page think?" When you put that? <laughs> like, somebody had to design a little icon that you put next to his name or her name, you know, or they, their name. Like they, they probably again. thought it was just a paycheck. <laughs> yeah, like what the hell? Um, you know, I, and if you go back throughout the entire course of human history, the one, the only thing that is consistent. Um, throughout the ages is art um it goes all the way back to the cave paintings and it goes back and it, it it hopefully will um continue through the entirety of human existence but people need to tell stories because um you know i can go into the whole cliche argument of like well people you know there's no soul without art and of course that's true um but People, psychologically speaking, um, have a need and a deep, it's part of our instincts to react to stories and to see ourselves in stories. Um, whether it's a simple story, um, you know, that's, that's literally, you know, two sentences long or, um, you know, something like Lord of the Rings where it's an anthology of, of books that, you know, can stretch on for ages. Right. Um, humans have always been telling stories and somewhere some someone is putting that story down on paper you know the, the 40,000 years ago there are cave there are cave paintings from 40,000 years ago that depict a hunt you know and like i you know i have i have the image on my computer it's like it just depicts a bunch of hunters with a dog type um of some kind um, or an animal um, hunting, you know, another animal. And that's a story that is, that is not only just a representation of what happened that day, perhaps, but we can say, oh, well, they hunted Buffalo back then. Yeah. Like it is literally an anthropological record. Um, and an artist had to do that. Yeah. And we will always be telling stories as humans. Um, and we will, there, there will be, there will always be a human, regardless of how hard, you know, the, the world, um, wants to train art out of people or remove art from schools, remove music from schools, um, no matter how much they try to quell, um, the artistic spirit or no matter how much they want to remove it from, 
uh, and, and consider it kind of unessential for children to learn, um, there will always be artists because there will always be people that say, you know what? I don't like the way the world is right now. So I want to design one that I feel like people would want to live in. Um, and art influences culture. It, it not only records culture, but it influences culture. Um, art is so ingrained into who we are as a species that um, if we ever lost it, we would lose ourselves. We wouldn't exist as a species anymore. So um, I wholeheartedly believe that. We cannot exist as, as, as humans without art. There we go. With that, that's all the questions I have for you. Um, I've already showered you with a bunch of praise, but I'm going to share you with more because it's my podcast. I, I do what yeah. I want. Um, <laughs> it's one of those, you know, whenever I was first told that I was getting the opportunity to even talk to you, like I was absolutely like shocked because, you know, seeing the uh -huh. stuff that you've had a hand in more or less, like I was all, I was especially invested with that, but getting a chance to like definitely do a lot more of a deep dive doing a lot more research, getting to talk to you, getting to hear your story from, you know, this little boy, you know, little person from, you know, New Jersey getting to work on some of, you know, some of the biggest cultural impacts out there right now. It's incredible to see where you've come, where you've developed more. It's your art is absolutely stunning and I cannot get enough of it now. And if this is what you're doing at this point, <laughs> I, I think that as you develop more as an artist, I, I can only imagine just like the, the highest of peaks you'll eventually reach. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for putting in the work and time and effort to bring something amazing into this world. And I cannot thank you enough. And thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. That means a lot to me. This is a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun chatting. Um, I, I'm glad you did because I could tell you had a lot you wanted to talk about. <laughs> Which... I, I am at my core. Uh, I am Italian and, uh, <laughs> Italian American, uh, we we love to talk and we love to, uh, you know, just just have great conversations. So, um, I mean, I could I could talk about animation and what I do, um, and who I'm inspired by and what I'm inspired by. Um, I could do it all day. I can I imagine. I, I mean, hey, if I you ever it. if you want another open invitation to come back on the podcast, you are more than welcome to. Seriously, I'll have me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. Yeah, I am. I am. But I am. But a person. I just. I think. Uh, I think it's important to recognize that um, for those of you who aren't in animation, that um, I. I am not on a pedestal. I'm not. I might have a job that you might want. Right. Um, that you might uh, eventually want to do. But I'm. I'm no different or better than you. I'm just in a different position yeah. in my life. Um, and, you know, somebody's got to do it. So, and that's why. That's the journey that I have. It's like somebody has to do it. Why can't it be me? So. Um, but I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you let me back, I'd, I'd love to come back. Absolutely. Um, I love things. Um, you know, hopefully all of you guys watch I Heart Arlo tomorrow. Exactly. Um, I think it, I think you'll have a lot of fun with it. And of course the songs are just absolutely a delight. Uh, they're wonderful. So, um, enjoy singing along just as I will be. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I was going to say, aside from watching I Heart Arlo to help support you for those who might be curious, if they don't know beforehand, go ahead and plug yourself for the people at home. Oh, sweet. Um, well, I do teach a character design class at Brainstorm. Um, I teach a CDA1 is the class that I teach, character design for animation. Um, I also teach um, a mentorship at CGMA. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to be doing that again. I think I might do that in the spring. Um, but I am teaching one um, 
It starts September 21st, I believe, is the first day. So there's still time to sign up. I think there's a couple spots left. There you go. Uh, I'm also doing a workshop for La Galeria, uh, La Galeria Roja um, in Spain. Um, you don't have to be in Spain to do it. It's an online workshop, um, and you can sign up uh, by going to lagaleriaroja.com um, or emailing info at lagaleriaroja.com um, for more information. Um, and yeah, I mean, just, I guess, follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's just my name. It's David A.D. Pasquale. Uh, or, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Just, I'd love to chat. I'm always open to, to messages and stuff. So if anybody has any questions or, um, you know, you want to chat further, I'm always open to conversation. There you, so. go. you also got your Twitter at Wolf and Sheeps. Right. At Wolf and Sheeps. Yep. There you go. And if I, you missed any links, I'll be sure to try to get them linked in the description below. Um, cool. Do you have any final words before we sign off? Uh, yeah. Come work in animation. Uh, we need more people and we need more cool people. And uh, we need people with new and fresh and wonderful ideas. Um, and I hope to uh, work with any one of you. So. There you go. There you go. I mean, hey, the opportunity is there for you guys. <laughs> yeah, there's space there for everybody. There you go. With that, all I have left to say is for the people at home, hasta luego, mi amigos. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to ApocalypsePodcastNetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard.